coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. As you guys all know, I'm Tyler, and here with me on the other end of the line is my co-host, Curtis. I don't know where you guys are at in all of this, but it's day 24 now of my personal quarantine, and it's definitely not ideal, to say the least. And I'm sure most of you, I'm willing to bet all of you are with me on that for a multitude of reasons, but... No worries, we have got you covered today, and we're going to do our best to help you take your mind off this whole crazy situation dominating all of our lives right now, at least for a good solid hour, depending on how much we end up having to say about today's topic, and that topic is our fearless leader, Kirby Smart. If you aren't aware, I'm sure a lot of you you caught this last week, as starved as we are for sports information and, and any sort of sports talk at all. Kirby Smart made the media rounds late last week, and he had some interesting things to say about the team, recruiting, how the program is handling the current crisis, and really just what the future might hold down the road in 2020. He went on Bulldog Game Day on 6A The Fan in Atlanta with Chuck Dowdle on Wednesday morning. He then participated in a conference call interview with beat writers, and he even made an appearance on the Paul Feinbaum show on Thursday and we are going to react to everything our head man had to say today on the podcast. So let's go ahead and get into it today. And uh, let's actually start with two very different responses that Coach Smart had when asked about the effect of not having the ability to have spring practice. So we're going to start first. This was uh, an interview on Wednesday with Chuck Dowdle on Bulldog Game Day on 6A The Fan. And Coach Smart had this to say about the impact of spring practice being canceled across the nation. He said, quote, I think it's a little bit speculative right now to say that it helps or hurts one team any more than another. I don't agree with the theory that it helps you more or it hurts you more. So that's Kirby Smart part one when asked about the effect of not having spring practice. That was on Bulldog game day on 6A of the fan. But then the very next day when essentially asked the exact same question, by Paul Feinbaum, Kirby responded a little bit differently. He said, quote, I think if everybody didn't have it, talking about spring practice, it probably wouldn't bother me as bad. We've got a new offensive coordinator and a new quarterback coming in, whoever it's going to be. And to not get those practices, boy, that's tough. If you were fortunate enough to have spring practice early, like some programs did, I certainly think that helps. To get 10 or more practices in is huge. So, Curtis, two seemingly conflicting answers to basically like the same question there. So, I, I'm kind of curious about your take on this. How much will not having like, the traditional spring practices impact our 2020 football team? Um, I don't know if long-term the impact. I think it impacts right now. I mean, we'll probably have – if they do have the season, you'll see them go really hard. They'll allow teams to go really hard over the summer and try to work on timing and things. Um, but to me, that's probably the biggest thing is where it's going to affect us as we work in a new offensive line. I mean, practically an entire new offense, and I think that's going to be the just the one spot where you see it. I mean, not only do you have a new offensive coordinator, but you have a new quarterback, new line, new O-line coach, all those different things. So that's probably going to be where the biggest uh, adjustment is and probably will be where it affects us the most. Yeah, no doubt. I agree with that. I think defensively, and Kirby kind of alluded to this in another quote in that same interview, but defensively, like it's not really a problem, is it? 
No, not at all. I mean, you're not changing anything. You have a lot of the same players back. We essentially have every player back except for, like, with the exception of J.R. Reed, and I guess you can say Tay Crowder. Uh, but every but you other guy, Tyler Clark, you got Tyler Clark. Those are the big three, right? Tyler Clark, J.R. Reed, and Tay Crowder. I guess you can throw Michael Barnett in there, who's kind of a, a rotation player on the defensive line. But really, outside of that, I mean, you've got basically everyone coming back. And the cool thing is, like, even those guys that were missing, they were all, I mean, J.R. played, I mean, he played almost every snap. But but Tay Crowder and Tyler Clark, those guys are in rotations. There are other guys that are getting a lot of snaps in those spots who are going to be back and be ready to take that next step and, uh, and be that guy this year. So defensively, I think we're okay. You're right. We have basically the same staff coming back. Dan Landing's coming back. We'll talk about him a little bit later in the show and, and a nice salary increase he got. Good for him. Uh, those guys are back. Kirby's back. So nothing's changing defensively. Uh, we might even get a little bit more exotic because we have these guys back and we throw some different things at them, some of these younger guys we've had in here for a while now. So uh, with the personnel back, coaches back, that's fine. Offense, you're right. That's that's the question mark. And if Jay Fromm was coming back and we had uh, – and this is where I, I don't want to say like any of us probably wish that we had James Coley back. I don't think anyone's ready to go there. But like it wouldn't be as much of an issue if we had James Coley coming back and Jay Fromm coming back. But that's not the case. Neither one of those guys are coming back. We've got a new coordinator – and we've also got a new quarterback, whoever it might be. You and I, Curtis, have gone on record saying that it's almost certainly going to be Jamie Newman. But whoever it ends up being, if it's Stetson somehow, uh, if it's Dwan Mathis somehow, uh, it, it's it's going to be a new guy. It could be Carson Beck. It's going to be a new guy. So with a new scheme and new personnel at the most critical position on the team, and a lot of new offensive linemen as well, and a new offensive line coach, there's a lot of turnover there. So I do think – I mean, I'm concerned to a degree. Now, I, I do take solace in the fact that basically uh, very few teams had a chance to get spring practice in, but there were yeah, a couple of things. I mean, and realistically, outside Florida, who's returning uh, Kyle Trask, almost every major university in the Southeastern Conference is breaking in a new quarterback. I mean, while Mac Jones, people like that, got some, got some PT and reps and stuff last year, they're still losing some of their star players. So, I mean, all around, it's going to be a, a adjustment period for almost all the quarterbacks. You're exactly right. And I love that you brought up Florida there for a second because that's what you hear. Now, obviously, there's not much to talk about. So when you're listening to podcasts or radio shows, the comparison is when they're talking about the effect that COVID-19 is going to have on the college football season. And when they talk about Georgia and the SEC, they point to us saying, well, we, like everything I just you and I just laid out, new coordinator, new coach, new offensive line coach, uh, new off- offensive line personnel. And then you look at Florida. Kyle Trask is a returning starter. Dan Mullen's coming back. Kyle Pitts coming back, right? And so they look at that and, and kind of point to that as evidence. Well, you know what? This is this might be Florida's year. Georgia's got so much uncertainty on offense, so many new pieces, so much turnover, and Florida's got so much stability on offense. Do you buy into that? Like, is that a major advantage for Florida? I mean, it would if it wasn't for the fact that I'm so confident at the same time in our defense, yeah. um, which really helps us. And at the same time, I think Kyle Trask is grossly, grossly overrated. So overrated. Yes. I mean, you're literally bragging about a guy who couldn't even start for his own high school. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And he, look, he's solid. Like, he's what I'll say about Trask. Like, he's a solid player. He's a good, solid quarterback. He's, he, he brings stability. That's what he brought to them last year. He brought stability, which was the opposite. I actually think Felipe, I mean, while he was more stable, Felipe Franks was more dangerous as a playmaker because he could run and Trust. at times he could make big things happen. Felipe Franks was physically more gifted, uh, not as stable as, in terms of a decision maker. And I, I and I think that Kyle Trask was that stable presence, which and he cut down on their turnovers and their catastrophic mistakes, and that allowed them to win some games maybe they hadn't won in the past. So, but yeah, he's a good, solid, stable quarterback. He is not an elite quarterback, and 
Florida fans can can fight me to whatever on this. I mean, look, that's fine. They they love their guy. That's cool. We love our guys. Um, but I'm with you. He's grossly overrated. This idea that he's some elite returning quarterback, a top three quarterback in America, like I think that's hilarious. I think that's flat out comical. Um, but but they do have some stability coming back. So offensively, that does benefit them. Uh, and you mentioned the idea that you think the NCAA is going to, like, if we do have this 2020 season, God willing, please, dear God, um, if we do have this 2020 season, you think that the NCAA is going to make some sort of concessions to allow teams get more practices in than just the traditional fall camp? I think 100%. I mean, they know. I would see it maybe more so for teams that didn't really get much practice in the spring to yeah. make it fair. Um, I think that's how you'd have to do it because you can't. It's not fair to give everyone open free reign and you know a lot more practices. Yet you have some of those teams, but Big Ten teams and other teams like that that already had a certain amount of practices. So I think yeah. you have to take that into account. But um, I think they are going to open it up. They're going to have to because they want. I mean, football is the money maker for all sports, um, and they can't have these teams out here not producing at a high level. Yeah, and intellectually, and let's everything- be honest too. The the for the most part, NCAA is going to give in to what the football wants because they can make or break people that I mean they can break you know bring down regimes that's exactly what you and I were talking about like now it's finally getting some play but you and I were talking about this early last week like as early as last Sunday talking about on 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 the mailbag show like hey if we don't like the question was essentially like hey is there gonna be a college football season how confident are you and and I I said 50 50 you were more confident than me but my my reasoning for why we why we needed to have one is that hey if we don't have college football season then we might not have any college sports at all next year because football drives the ship and we're talking about 75 plus percent of an athletic department's annual revenue coming from football programs and without that revenue if we get zero revenue from college football there is no way to fund the other athletic programs within an athletic department. Most universities and most athletic departments, I should say, do not sit on the kind of reserves that we sit on. We have like $65 million in reserves. We have done a great job protecting that. We gave Greg McGurdy a hard time for a long time just sitting on that money and never using it. And he looks he looks like a freaking genius right now. But most universities cannot withstand that. Um, so you're right. I think that's – that's certainly something the NCAA is going to look into. Is like, hey, we have to have a season. We're going to have to do whatever it takes to allow these players to get ready, have, give them time to to have um, a season. Well, not only that, but college sports are big for universities in general. I mean, the it's it, I mean it hurts uh, attendance. I mean, at the schools and everything. It's not just yeah. you know for sports. You got to think of what these what it really does for universities. I mean, for the, the universities SEC, for the college towns. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, the college towns. You're going to see a lot of it. And, I mean, just in general, the SEC or, I mean, college football, you think about the SEC, that's what a lot, why a lot of students prefer to go to schools in the South. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look at Alabama's enrollment since Nick Saban got there. I, can't, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I've seen it in the past, and it's like, whoa, my God. Like the, the number of students that are coming into Alabama during the Nick Saban era. And there, you, you ha- there's no coincidence there. There's absolutely a connection. Um, but, like, everything you said about them – you know, expanding the amount of time for practice and all that intellectually to me, it makes sense. But here's my question. Here's where I, I think if the NCAA is going to give teams more time than just your traditional August fall camp, I don't think the season can start on time. And here's why I say that there are a number of universities out there and some big time universities like Oklahoma, for example, who have already shut down in-person meetings on campus all the way through the end of July. 
So if we're saying like some universities, it, 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 it's not every university, but if some universities are, are in this situation, then they're going to they're gonna have to account for this for everybody. They're going to have to, especially if it's a, a big university like Oklahoma, for instance. If, if Oklahoma cannot have in-person meetings until after, January, or, uh, after July 31st, then the only way to have more practice and more preparation and more workout time prior to fall camp starting in August would be to push the season back a couple weeks or a month. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I have seen some universities, I can't remember where, but they've closed it to everything uh, for a long time, but they said sports are subject to the NCAA's uh, changes. Yeah, and that's, and so that's have, where there's some gray area. Yeah, yeah they have a lot of schools have put gray areas in place. And I also like wonder, like, okay, so like Oklahoma, you've made this pronouncement as a university that you're canceling all in-person contact until, uh, until after July 31st, but is that set in stone? Can you roll that back if, if – things start to look a little bit better from the coronavirus standpoint. I'm not saying they will. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm trying not to get ahead of the bus here. But, like, it, I have that question. Like, hey, you've, you've made these declarations, like, three, four months out in advance. Well, if things start to look a little less dire and it looks like we're in better position than maybe people anticipated, can you just go back and say, hey, you know what? Uh, maybe we don't have to cancel this in, through July 31st. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I hope that's the case. So I don't know. Like I, I, I still think there's a possibility. I feel better and better almost every with each passing day, especially as you see some of these re, uh, revised models. And the models don't do nothing for me because they're all based on input. It's all, it's all, they're only as good as the input you have to put into it. And there's just such incomplete information out there uh, in terms of like asymptomatic cases and how many people have actually had uh, or how many people have been. Uh, I mean, considering infected. we were supposed to have over two hundred, like two million plus deaths already. Right, initially, right, initially. Now it's down to like 80,000, and we're going to be peaking. Like in New York, we're going to peak like in two days. And now, um, now you'll – I mean, starting probably next week, it'll say, all right, we'll have 50,000 deaths. I mean, it's it's yeah. always changing. Yeah, so I mean – and and that's like I don't want – I'm, I'm knocking on wood here. I do not want to get ahead of myself. But it like some of the models are now – there's a little positivity that you're seeing out there. I mean, we're still not there yet by any stretch of imagination. But you have the PGA has come out and said, hey, like we're going to start – the British Open is done, but we're going to be playing – uh, the PGA Tour, I think I think the PGA Championship is in August, is that right? And then the U.S. Open in September, the Masters in November. So they're I, playing on playing. From my understanding, as of now, again, this is all in flux. It can all change. It's all fluid. But as of right now, at least the Masters, I know, they're 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 planning on having fans in attendance. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah. Uh, yeah that's so why I pushed it back to where they did. Right. So I, I think if those things are happening, I think there's – I feel better and better about saying there's going to be some semblance of a college ball season – in what way, shape, or form, how it's going to look, I don't know. Uh, but I, I'm feeling better about saying we're going to have it. I just my, – my concern is I don't know if we're going to start on time. And it's possible. I, I can't say no. Um, but I'm just saying, like, if you look at some of these things, unless some of these universities are rolling back and, and uh, kind of moving back some of these days, saying, oh, you know what? Yeah, we said July 31st, but we actually the, – the, the projections now look a lot better, so maybe we'll say June 30th or June 30th or whatever. Um, so maybe it's possible. But if unless they make some – unless they pull back on some of that – I'm not sure there's enough time to get the get players back on campus to have them work out for a month and get in shape and then practice. The thing is, you don't want to just throw them into practice. Like you don't want to just throw a, a, a group of players into fall camp without any sort of prep. And then when they, all they've been doing is working out with themselves at home, doing push-ups, running up hills and steps and stuff like that. Yeah, that's something, but that's not enough to really get you prepared. I think people do underestimate and to some degree like what it takes to get prepared for a college football season. So that's my one concern. Now, if we can get teams back by the start of July, then I think, you, hey, all right, you have a month to work out, to get your team prepared, get them in shape, and then you have fall camp in, um, in August, and then you're ready to go. That's possible, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, I got, I'm with you, Carl. I, I ultimately go back to the spring practice question. I do think it hurts 
offensively. But if the NCAA can make some concessions and get some of those practices back in some way, shape, or form, I think it will will ultimately end up being okay. I don't like the fact that we're not on campus with our team right now. And uh, guys like Jamie Newman kind of building relationships with their teammates, you're doing uh, seven-on-seven where it's not mandated, all that kind of stuff. I'm those just glad we're at least doing things the right way, not trying to give all our players Apple Watches and claim yeah. that we're not – not and trying to claim that we're not making them work out, but yet we track and know if they don't. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know. There's a lot of moving parts here, obviously, but I will say, like, it kind of it's frustrating that a team like Clemson, who didn't really need it, by the way. I think they got like nine practices in because they started so early, like in February. Uh, Vanderbilt, not that it really matters to Vanderbilt. They got they started they always start in February, so they got some in. So there are some teams out there that got some in. We got zero because it's really just because of the, it's a function of where you our ha- I do believe that we need to move it up though in general. You think we do? I mean, yeah. There's no point in waiting until spring break. Well, the, the problem we're, is- we're already having to like adjust it for mas- the Masters in general. So why yeah. not just take over and say, you know what? These we'll have it right now. The issue is if the spring the where UGA spring break falls is the issue. Because what Kirby doesn't want to do is start, say, okay, I'm going to have two weeks of spring practice, and then guys are going spring break, and then we're going to come back and have two more two more weeks of spring practice. He doesn't want to break it up. He wants to have them all together. And I get that, but I think now maybe we might look back and say, uh, maybe like that's not ideal, but it's, a, it's the best option in case something horrific happens like, again like this, right? Or Kirby's just going to go in and say spring breaks could be set at a different time. Georgia's spring break is ridiculous anyway. The fact that it's like the first full week of, of March – or the second week of March, um, it's insane because you can't really go anywhere where it's really warm. You just simply can't. It's stupid. It needs to be like in 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 uh, in early April, like it is in a lot of school districts across the state of Georgia. It's it's ridiculous, but I've I never quite understood why it is when it is. But uh, yeah, Kirby has some powers. So maybe he'll ultimately get that changed, so he doesn't have to break it up. I wouldn't be shocked to see that at all. But um, all right, let's move on here. Uh, so most teams missed out on spring practice. We we just covered that in detail but the NCAA what they have done is they've allowed teams to use video conferencing networks like Zoom uh, to allow coaches to meet with players uh, virtually it it was initially only two hours but with some pushback from coaches and Kirby kind of mentioned this in in, uh, one of his interviews there's some pushback on the time limitations like two hours what can you really do in two hours that got pushed to four hours a week when the NCAA updated the policy late last week but Kirby had this to say when asked about the benefit of video conferencing by Paul Feinbaum. He said, quote, it's unique. If you're not ready to embrace a challenge, this is the ultimate get comfortable being uncomfortable. When coaches have to go onto virtual networks like Zoom, it's not always good for guys that aren't as young as these players. I found that most of our young guys are much more compatible with dealing with computers than some of the older guys are. So it's been an experience. So Kurt, we talked about spring practice. Really, what we can do right now, all the coaches can really do is this video conferencing. So how much can video conferencing compensate for missed spring practices? Or is that just like a joke? I think it's a joke. I mean, to me, it's more about film and stuff. I don't think there's yeah. only so much. I believe there's only so much you can actually do over the video conferencing. There's no replacement for actual reps. There's just not. Um, you can do mental reps, and that that's better than nothing. Like when guys are hurt, right? Like you'll see them on the sideline and they're in, uh, during practice and they're doing mental reps. That's what they say. They're watching and doing mental reps. And that's better than nothing, but nothing replaces going through the actual physical rep itself. For a guy like, oh, I don't know, let's say Jamie Newman, okay, and Carson Beck as a, as a true freshman coming here as an early enrollee, nothing. Like you can do all those, the film watching you can, you can do. That's great, and that's a big part of what you have to do as a quarterback, but nothing 
replaces doing the actual physical rep, taking your drops, uh, throwing the actual, you're reading defenses, making the right decision, putting the ball in the money, making all the different uh, throws with all the different routes, combinations, all that kind of stuff. Nothing replaces the actual rep. So I do think there's some benefit to it. Uh, like you said, watching tape, um, really just kind of implementing some of the the scheme, like going through the playbook. I know the guys already have the playbook, but like maybe talking through it some with your offensive coordinator, with your offensive staff, that helps. It's better than nothing, but it certainly does not replace actual reps in a real spring practice. So that's why I'm still very hopeful. I'm glad it's something. It's better than nothing. But I'm still very hopeful that we're going to find a way, I don't know how, but somehow to get those practices in in some way, shape, or form at some point this summer. Uh, I'm very hopeful there. So we'll see. I don't know. Video conferencing, again, better than nothing, but I don't know if it's all that great. All right, um, moving on here. Now, Kirby also participated in a conference call with beat writers where he answered pre-submitted questions. And he even actually took a few impromptu questions towards the end. One of the questions he answered dealt with which players had stood out in workouts leading up to the spring. And Kirby offered some pretty good nuggets on what he had seen. So we're going to take this player by player. So there's three or four players we're going to, we're, that he mentioned that we're going to talk about here. And the first guy that he uh, highlighted was George Pickens. And he had the following to say, about George is that quote I thought that George was competing really hard and doing good things in the workouts he likes the competitive side of those things so nothing like all that insightful there about about George Pickens but he at least singled him out which tells you something so Kurt I think obviously we're all very excited about George Pickens and what he's going to be able to do for us if we have a 2020 season but like really in your mind what is his ceiling in year two Are, are, are we talking like AJ Green level good or something below that? Like, what is the ceiling? No, I think he can have a great year, especially with Newman, someone that could extend plays. That's someone that can make George so, so good, um, allowing him to, you know, work and do things like that to get open. And I think the biggest thing, maybe what Kirby's alluding to, is George's immaturity and things. Last year is kind of what stuck out to a lot of people the most. So if he can come in and be a leader, then I think that uh, it just makes him that much better of a player where he's not requiring a lot more hands-on coaching and he can just focus on certain things that he needs to work on instead of, you know, the coaches have to take him to the side all the time. That's a great point. Yeah, th- it's a different focus. Like, we're still, he's still growing and developing. Maybe it's not as much about the maturity and making good decisions. It's about, like, hey, here's your actual technical growth. Here's the things you need to do. I mean, that's a difference in the star receiver and someone who's, like, super talented. Uh, yeah. You know, some of these young guys, that's that's what really how they separate themselves. I think that's one of the things that separated A.J. Green. Because um, he, he treated it like a job from day one. Yeah, from day one, he was as mature as you could possibly. He handled it. I mean, you could tell in his recruitment. You can always tell or you can typically tell when you uh, follow recruiting as closely as we do. And you, you kind of get to know these guys with interviews and kind of just following what's going on. And A.J. Green, even from the time he was being recruited, was just a quiet, introverted dude that went about his business, very businesslike in his demeanor and his approach to things. And he came in from day one. That's to me, like, obviously he was insanely gifted physically. Duh, we know that. But there are a lot of guys that are insanely physically gifted coming in as freshmen that don't make much of an impact. You've got to have the physical gifts, and you've got to also have the maturity, the discipline. And that's what A.J. had. And I think that's why we saw – flashes from Pickens, but we didn't see anything close to consistency we saw from A.J. Green as a true freshman. We didn't, we just didn't see that. We saw the flashes, but we didn't see it consistently. Um, well, especially so when he gets me, suspended for half and then kicked out of a half or kicked yeah, out of I mean, a we game. Should, and- yeah, we just, like that was never a thought for a guy like A.J. Um, but physically, like, do you think, like, like, is there, like, is he that far off physically from what A.J. was? 
Uh, no. Honestly, the guy has his own. I mean, he's not as fast. I don't think, in my opinion, but I think that that he just he just plays the receiver position so well. Yeah, he he does he does things very well. I mean, he has incredible body control. It's kind of like a god given thing, which AJ had in space and amazing well. hands, which amazing most hands. players Strong. don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And th- again, those are things like you can you can work on that to a degree, but a lot of it's just like this is what this guy does. Um, I think he's I think when comparing him to AJ Green, I think AJ is like I know the numbers don't say he's the best receiver we've ever had, but I think f- watching our receivers, he's the best we've ever had, uh, in my opinion. I mean, Terrence Edwards was, was a stud, but it wasn't AJ Green physically. I think AJ's just a notch above George. I don't think George is too far off. But AJ's faster, more athletic. Um, Pickens is very athletic in his own right, very fast on, on, in his own right, great physical tools in his own right. I just don't think it's quite the level of AJ, but I think he can be a in, in really, really good player. Um, so last year we saw that he obviously we saw those gifts, like I said, in 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 spurts, but he was never able. Like he was on the team all year last year. He was playing from essentially game one, and he played more and more. Season went on, obviously, as he got more comfortable, but. Really, until that the final game against Baylor, he was never as good as he was and as gifted as he was. He was never able to really compensate for the lack of help around him at the other wide receiver spots, especially once Kager went down. And if you look at our receivers this year, like a lot of the same guys are back. Like we don't, I mean, we're getting an influx of some of some talented young freshmen. But like, but they're freshmen. We don't know how good they're going to be written, how much they're going to be ready to contribute in year one. But you, you still got. Uh, Demetrius Robertson back. You've still got Matt Landers. You've got hopefully Dominic Blaylock coming back. A lot of the same guys are going to be back that really didn't offer much help last year, all things considered. But do you think George is going to be good enough this year? Is he going to raise his game to the level this year where he can compensate for those receivers around him maybe not being quite at his level? I think he can because it's the little things that separate, you know, these, like I was saying, that is what separates these players. And the more he learns the system, the better he's going to be in general. Um, yeah. So I think it's going to help him to compensate for not having all the star power around him. And I also think the offensive scheme in general, uh, I think that we are going to do some things offensively. And uh, that will, I, I think, free up receivers a little bit more. I, one of my issues that we had, that I had, again, not so much individual play calls, sometimes it's just play design and scheme in general. We didn't really scheme ways to get guys, rely on them just to be like better than the other guy, right? Better than the cornerback. And sometimes they were, some, but a lot of times they weren't. Uh, but I think we're going to do some different things this year schematically to allow these guys to get some more free releases. And also if you have a mobile quarterback that absolutely changes the I mean, the some of like Pickens, you saw it at times. They did it a couple times, but consistently we put him in the slot and allow him to not get jammed off the line. Yep, absolutely. And again, if you have, and you're exactly right. If you, have a, if you have a mobile quarterback, it changes the dynamic from a coverage standpoint because they have to account for the quarterback's ability to run, which means a lot of times you're taking an, a defender out of coverage, which frees you up, gives you a lot more man coverage looks, a lot of different things that you can do, different ways you can attack a defense with that. So I do think that, that has to be factored in here as well. But I think Georgia's going to race this game. And the, the one thing that gives me a lot of confidence here – we played a really good Baylor defense in the Sugar Bowl. That was a really good Baylor defense. And George went off in that game. And he had, let's be real, no help at receiver in that game. None. No. Nada. Nunca. No help at all. And he flat out went off. So if he was able to do that in a big game, in the Sugar Bowl setting, with no help around him, with really no help at we were certainly not completely healthy at running back when, with DeAndre Swift being a, only taking a couple of snaps in that game. And no help, very little help at wide receiver against a good Baylor defense, that gave me a lot of hope on what he can do this year, even if the other receivers still don't take that step to help him out this year. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. We'll see, but I'm hopeful. 
Um, all right. Uh, another player that Kirby also singled out was redshirt freshman offensive lineman Clay Webb saying, uh, quote, Clay Webb was a guy who was really competing hard and was doing some good things. All right, Kurt. So Clay Webb, former five-star recruit from Alabama, didn't really play last year, redshirted. How serious of a contender do you see him being for a starting spot on the offensive line in 2020? If it was for the fact that Trey Hill's already played center, I'd say he'd be our starting center next year. Yes, yeah, that's the thing. I don't, I don't think we're going to move. From what I understand, for just talking to some people around the program, I don't think we. It doesn't seem like we want to move Trey Hill from center because there was some talk about like, hey, maybe like there was a thought like, hey, maybe we, we can move Trey Hill to guard and insert Clay Webb at center or Erickson at center or something like that. But that doesn't seem to be the plan right now. I'm not saying it can't happen, but that doesn't seem to be the plan right now. So if he's not going to play center with Trey Hill still being there, can he factor into the competition at one of those two guard positions? Um, I think so. I mean, the what really hurts him is the fact that um, Ben Cleveland's gonna be back. Yeah, I think Cleveland. Like, like I don't want to speak in absolute. You guys know I don't like to do that, but like, it, I'm fair. I, I'm pretty confident Ben Cleveland's got one of those spots back if he stays healthy and stays eligible. Uh, that's kind of where I am right now. I think he's got that right guard spot. So to me, it's the left guard spot more than anything. That is open. That's wide open. You got Warren Erickson. You got uh, a guy that we're going to talk about here in a minute, Justin Schaefer. You got Clay Webb's going to factor that's the thing. I think Schaefer's going to be the easier person to beat out, in all honesty. Okay. Really? So you think Schaefer's going to be easier to beat out, or do you think he's got more of a chance to win the job? I think he'd have more of a chance to beat out Schaefer than he would uh, being Cleveland. Oh, being Cleveland. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, that left guard spot, I mean, that's – I mean, Schaefer might win it. Um, but yeah, I think that's, a, that's a spot that's more open. I think he'll factor in. Like, I don't know if he's going to be the guy, but I certainly think he's going to be a guy that's going to be in contention. And it wouldn't shock me at all if he's in the rotate, if, if we I don't know if we're ever going to do a rotation this year, we'll see, but I, it wouldn't shock me at all if he was starting, uh, when we roll out there game one, whoever that ends up being against. Um, so you mentioned Shaver. Let's, let's go ahead and talk about Shaver. Kirby mentioned him as well. Um, Kirby also seen about Justin rising senior offensive lineman, Justin Shaver saying of Shaver, Quote, not that he was an outstanding performer, but considering he wasn't able to do anything for six to eight weeks, if you guys remember he had a neck injury, he was in a neck brace for at least half the year. Uh, now he's coming back out there competing and pushing through adversity. I was really proud of the way he worked and tried to lead. Okay, Justin Schaefer is a guy you mentioned. He's a guy who, that, Kurt, you've been critical of him in the past. How much of a factor do you see him being on the offensive line in 2020? Um, he has a chance to be a factor, but I wouldn't be pa- surprised if he got passed up because we just have quite a few guys who can play the guard position. And I think yeah. that's what's going to hurt him. Yeah, I think he. I think well, there's three guys I'm looking at right now, and I'm not saying they're the only guys in the competition. There's going to be other names that are roll in there, but the three guys that I, that I have at the top of my head when it comes to that left guard spot are Schaefer, um, Clay Webb, and Warren Erickson, the guy we started start at right guard and um, the uh, Sugar Bowl. And you, you could maybe throw Jamari Salyer in there. That depends on like how we feel about the other tackles, guys like Warren McClendon, Xavier Trust, Roger Jones uh, coming in as a, as a true freshman, uh, Tate Riley's coming in as a true freshman. How do we feel about that position? And that kind of, I think that would depend on what we do with Jamari Salyer. I think Jamari Salyer would be a better fit as a guard personally, but I think he's also equipped to slide out and potentially play tackle if needed kind of like i don't know isaiah win back in the day uh, but uh, schaefer i think he's gonna have a shot i see right now if if we end up playing salier at tackle i would say right now my odds on favor to win that left guard spot at least to open the season would be justin schaefer because of the experience he has on that life you remember last year when when uh, solomon kenley went out in their game game it was justin schaefer who was the first one to come in and go in that spot now, i know we have a new offensive line coach 
That's a totally different animal. I get that. But I mean, Schaefer will probably win it. Let's be honest. Starting yeah. out the season, I just, I just don't really. To me, one of his biggest problems is he plays with terrible leverage. That has always been an issue for him. Yeah, that has been an issue for him, and, and something's got to improve on. Hopefully, he gets better at it this year. I don't know, um, but he's. I mean, he's a guy that's a physical player. He, he can be a road grader, a la Ben Cleveland, a la Solomon Kinley at times. I don't think and he's that's the thing. I, I, I just don't know is how many road graders are going to need. I think that, you know, yeah. we've talked about Matt Lewis could be a different type coach. I don't think he's as high on the road graders as, yeah. say, Sam Pittman was. And that's where you can see a guy like Clay Webb or Warren Erickson jump in there and be a little bit more athletic than Schaefer. So I don't know. Schaefer's got the experience. He's got the the kind of veteran uh, presence on the line, that kind of thing. But I, we've got a new offensive line coach, so we'll see how much that plays into it. But I certainly think he'll be in the thick of that battle, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, all right, the last player that we're going to talk about here that Kirby praised was running back James Cook. And in reference to Cook, he said this, quote, James Cook, I mean – we had competitions daily to see who was going to win individual battles, and James probably had the largest winning percentage. He and Zamir White really challenging each other and competing really hard, and those guys continue to grow. All right, Kurt, James Cook uh, is a guy that we have really kind of had difficulty creating a major role for. How serious do you take a statement like that from Kirby? Is James Cook, like in your mind, really a serious challenger to Zamir White for that number one running back job? I do because I think the system is just what's going to fit him best. And I think that's why he's going to be so dangerous. I think Tom Munkin, even, you know, with him as as your number one guy, he could be such a weapon and you just don't know how he's going to be used, which is why I would like him the Todd Munkin offense. Do you think he can be an every down back like guys like DeAndre Swift and Nick Chubb? If he continues to get his weight up, yes. And I've seen pictures of him working out with his brother right now. Um, His brother's been posting some pictures. I've yeah, and he looks like he's put on some very good weight, which is encouraging to me. Yeah, I, I, I saw some pictures of him uh, before this whole COVID thing, before spring break, and he look. I mean, I know we said the same thing about him last year, but he looks even bigger than he did last year. I mean, which makes well, that's sense. The thing. You know? he, as long as he continues to get bigger and bigger, it's better for him. Yeah. And it looked like it was good weight, and I think he's going to be one of these that benefits by having a brother that's well, uh, you know, well off being in the pros and everything. Um, because yeah, he has think? access to workout equipment that not all the other players have right that's now. That's a great point. That's a really great point, actually. Uh, that's that's a great point. Um, I'm I'm excited about James Cook, man. Look, I, I love Zamir. I'm excited about Zamir. I'm excited about the competition. I love competition. And look, we know we need a one-two punch. We know that's kind of how we roll. Uh, even with the new offensive coordinator, I imagine we're still going to roll with a one-two punch. That's just kind of the way football is gone now. Um, and I think James Cook can be that guy. And I, and I don't think, and I've said this from the time the guy got here, I don't think he has to be a what an old school you call a scat back. Like a lot of people see him as kind of just that, hey, you know, we're changing pace back. I don't think he has to be that. Maybe when he first got here, but if, if I always said if he just kind of bulks up a little bit, and he's done that, and I, I've and I've seen him run between the tackles. One thing I love about him, he runs really. Like, he can get skinny, right? Which is uh, a, a skill that not every running back has. And what I mean by get skinny is like when you've got traffic in there in in the in between the tackles in that tackle box, you can get skinny and kind of squirt through those small little holes when they appear before they close up. And he has shown the ability to do that. Uh, and I, I think he can run. He kind of has a, a straight up running style when he gets out in the open field. But he's all, I've also seen him be able to run with leverage as well. So I I've seen the ability to do that from him he just had to add a little bit of bulk and i think he started to do that so i 
absolutely buy that he's going to be in the thick of that competition to be the number one guy, especially as you mentioned with Tom Mocken coming in, being uh, bringing a new scheme to the equation that might fit his skill set a little bit more than maybe the ground and pound style of Zamir White, at least what we saw from Zamir White last year. Now, I think Zamir is better than that. And, and, and as he gets back more and more from his injuries, his ACL tears, he'll be back to what he closer to what he was in, in high school, which was a guy that had elite quickness, very, very, maybe not elite speed, but very good speed, ran with power. We saw the power last year. We didn't see the other stuff as much. I think we're going to see more of that this year. But I think James Cook's got a really, really strong chance to, to take that spot. And I don't think many people are talking about that. I think the assumption is that, that Zamir is just going to take that job, and he very well might. He's a great running back. But I wouldn't be shocked if, if Cook really, really, really pushed him there. Um, all right, let's move on here. Now, that same now going back to the conference call with beat writers, Kirby also spoke about the impact our current situation with the coronavirus is having on the NFL draft outlook of some of our maybe fringe NFL prospects. He said, quote, I know these pro teams do the greatest studies you've ever seen to get information, so they're not going to leave a stone unturned. I've had at least five NFL health coaches reach out. I get a text almost every day about our kids and communicate about them. Oh, I have no question that we'll probably have three to four guys that will be either late draft picks or free agents and make a team. You see it every year. He went on to say, uh, Jonathan Ledbetter pulled it off last year, and every year there's been somebody that makes a team, and the NFL recognizes that. One of those guys is going to do that. I don't know which one, but one of those guys or a couple of those guys may pull it off. All right. Uh, I think there's almost no doubt, Kurt, that not having pro days is going to hurt some of these fringe NFL guys. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, guys like Tyler Simmons, Tay Crowder, Charlie Warner, although he did get an invite to the Combine, uh, Tyler Clark, Michael Barnett, the Eli Wolfs of the world. But I want to focus on that last part of what Kirby said in that last quote, where he declared that one of these guys, at least one of these guys, is going to either get drafted late or be a free agent signing and make an NFL team. So if you were a betting man, which of those fringe guys from last year's team would you put money on to be the guy to do that and make an NFL team this year? Probably Warner. Um, you know, I mean, I've seen crazier things. You saw Jackson Harris make the uh, Seahawks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, yeah. and he got signed um, to a multi-year contract, if I remember correctly. I think and, so. And, and I think that's why I go with Warner, just because the uh, – the blocking and the receiving skill set at times can uh, be vers- you know, be important to a team that wants someone who's at least a little bit versatile. It depends on fit, right? <laughs> it depends on what team drafts him and, and how he fits with that team. It really does. Like he's probably not like, got drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs, probably not gonna make that team. Um I'm not sure. Okay, Troy Warner is interesting. I'm gonna go with the with the other tight. I'm gonna go with Eli Wolf. And for a different reason, uh, he's obviously not the blocker that Charlie was, uh, not as big and strong as Charlie. But like if those his virtual combine numbers are to be believed. We talked about this in the mailbag show last week where he runs a 4-4 40-yard dash, like a 4-1-6 short shuttle. Uh, if those numbers are to believe, be believed, like that's elite speed for a tight end. And that's what the, the NFL has become a passing league. We all know that. They want these hybrid spread type tight ends like Travis Kelsey, speaking of the Kansas City Chiefs. And I'm not saying Eli Wolf's Travis Kelsey, but if he is legit running a laser time 4-4 and a 4-1-6 short shuttle, that's elite for a tight end in terms of athleticism. So I wouldn't be shocked like, if those numbers are legit. If he gets signed, if he, I don't, I don't know if he'll get drafted, but if, even if he's a free agent signee, I wouldn't be shocked if he made a team. I would not. With the kind of just the way tight ends have evolved over the years, I think he kind of fits that mold a little bit. So that'd be my guy that I put money on right now. Maybe in Tyler, I also, I know, I know people want to, I love to bash on Tyler Simmons. Uh, and we've been critical. I mean, he of him. would shock me. You saw Jason Stanley make a team. 
and for me, it's about special teams with those guys. Like we talked about the Stanley's New Year's past, Tyler Simmons. Simmons was a special, like Stanley, Tyler Simmons was a special team standout. And if you put that on tape with his, he's got, he's a really fast, I mean, he's like four, four speed too. He's very fast. He just wasn't a great receiver, but special teams is a part of the game in the NFL. And he might, might not make a lot of money, but special teams players are valuable. So it wouldn't shock me with that ability to see him potentially stick on a team just for special teams play alone. If he can play every single uh, special teams unit out there, like, or most, if he can play uh, kick, uh, kick off, he can play punt, punt return. Although like, if he can play those, I think he has a shot. I think he has a shot. So we'll see. We'll see. But uh, I think I put my money on Eli Wolf, but uh, I might be crazy. Um, all right. This was also just a couple more here. This is the first time the media has actually had a chance to ask Kirby about the last big news story surrounding the program before the coronavirus uh, just about ended the world. And that of course would be the hiring of Scott Cochran, which made a lot of national waves when it was first announced in late February. It was, uh, man, it was really, it's really just over a month ago. But dude, it seems like eons ago, doesn't it? Currently, seem like we talked about this like years ago. It seems so long ago. But anyway, yeah, most of us, in, yeah, yeah, no, no kidding, man. But anyway, most of us in the Georgia fan base, we were, uh, especially here on this show, we were excited about the hire. But there were, of course, as there always is, it's fine. There were some national naysayers and obviously some rival fan bases, but who cares what they say? But they well, point it didn't out help because they, th- they think that since Saban wouldn't give him that job, why would right. we? Right. Hey, Saban, Saban did hire him for an on-field job, so like, wh- why do you think he's qualified, right? That whole thing. And, like, and, the, and what do you expect from that? That's, that's what they're going to say. I mean, um, and here's my thing. is if I'm gonna, I trust Kirby when it comes to these. I mean, he gave Glenn Schumann his first on-field position. Uh, Del McGee, I do not believe. I, he may have been, but I don't believe he, he had was, been. He, really was, he was at Georgia Southern. He was like he was there. He was the interim head coach after their coach got fired for part of that year, but nothing big. Yeah, and and like and that was like his first ever stop as yeah. a Dan Landing from Memphis, which was like his first real job outside of like on field job, I think. So you're right. I mean, we we should we, you just trust Kirby implicitly when it comes to hiring coaches at this point because he knows what he's looking for, the traits he's looking for, and I think that's the big difference. That it, he's not. It doesn't have to be the most successful coach who's been you know been successful at every stop he's been at. He's looking for certain what fits what he's looking from someone. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly what he said. Um, they're all the naysayers, but Kirby, like he was clearly prepared to answer this question. Like well, he, he knew probably been be waiting to answer to give oh, his yeah. opinion. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and so he, de- he talked about the Cochran hire and defended it by saying the following quote, I've always judged a coach by two qualities. And Curtis is exactly what you're talking about. He has this criteria. What is his ability to make players want to play for him? His relationship, do players want to run through the brick wall for their coach? Do they respect their coach? Do they want to play for their coach? Can he relate to them in a personal way and get them? Here's something I think is very key. Get them to do something that maybe another coach can't. So that's number one. Second is their ability to recruit. Both of those two things in my nine years at Alabama, he was outstanding at. He was always involved in some way, shape, or form with special Teams. So, Kurt, you kind of already I also like what he said in that interview too, where he said all the responsibilities are not falling on him. Also, yeah, absolutely. He said, "Look, we've got a lot of guys: Dan Landing, Glenn Schumann, Adele McGee. They've all had special teams responsibilities at some point in their career. So it's not like he shouldn't be sitting there 
on his own doing everything with special teams. Now, he's the special teams coordinator, just like there are other offensive coaches that the offensive coordinator coordinates, right? He gets he gets feedback from them, help, they can help him, help him game plan, but he ultimately is responsible for it. That's what we're talking about here. And so he, Kirby was very prepared. He said, look, there's two things that I look for. He laid those out, and he said, oh, by the way, it's not like this guy hasn't coached special teams before. I was at Alabama with him there. There was overlap, and I'm telling you, this guy was involved in special teams. He actually said uh, in another part of that quote that I didn't mention, he, he said, like, going back all the way to LSU, when he was at LSU with Saban, that uh, Cochran was helping with special teams then. So he, what the, basically what he was saying is, like, look, I look for two things with coaches. He fits both. He, like, it's a home run in terms of both of those criteria. And in terms of, like, him coaching special teams, all you guys criticizing him, saying that he's never coached special teams, you don't know what you're talking about. He's done it before. And even if he hadn't done it before, it's not like he's going to be doing it alone. We've got other guys that, that can help him out that have done he this He pretty before. much had a counter for everything they – they set tried. Yeah, very lawyer-like, right? Like you anticipate what the uh, what what the opposing side is going to say, what their arguments are going to be, and you kind of cut them off the knees. That's exactly what Kirby Smart did. Um, but what do you make like his criteria? Uh, basically, saying like his ability to build relationships with players, current players, and get them to respect him and play for him, and then second, his ability to recruit. Is, I mean, it's true. I never you, from all the stuff on Twitter, social media stuff, you never saw another an ex Alabama player wish him anything but the best. Um, you know, they all said he deserved it and everything like, you know, it's, it's all, it's all these crazy fans who are like saving random out. They knew his system wasn't working anymore. No, that's not even close to being true, but yeah, it's all those takes, but realistically every play, I mean, you saw stars at all levels giving him props because they respect him and they would, you know, he had a lot, a big impact on theirs, what they, to their, the machine that they became, and I, and I think it's true. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to rag on Scott Fountain or say Scott Fountain couldn't do certain things. But especially when it comes to special teams, I've always believed you just need someone who, you know, you need players in general that'll just run through the wall. And I think that's what he can get out of them. Yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. It's a great overview there. I, I totally agree with you. Um, one more question this before we move on to our last little bit of information. Do you like what the two criteria that Kirby laid out? building relationships with your players, getting them to respect you, and your ability to recruit. Do you think, like, are you good with that being the two main cri- pieces of criteria that Kirby Smart uses in his hiring of, of assistant coaches? I am, because I think everything else can be learned. Do you think Kirby Smart was ready to be the 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 top, the uh, coordinator at Alabama right away, or that he knew everything from his very first day that he ever became a coach? No, you learn on the job. Um, and, but as long as they show those traits, then, you know, you're working with someone who can be successful and can handle what you're asking them to do. I said it when he was hired. Um, I a hundred percent buy into this. This is to me, this was the reason to hire this guy. He, it's a culture thing. It's, it's, well, I mean, it's just like players. You want players that are coachable. You need coaches that can, that can be taught. Absolutely. hundred percent coaches that understand your expectations and you know, that that you know that they're willing to do the things that you want them to do because you worked with them, right? The things that you know they're going to be able to live up to your expectations because you've seen yeah, and them. Yeah, see, do like it. he knows Kirby's a grinder. Like he knows yep. what's expected of him. Yep. So I, I think it's a seamless transition, and uh, I I totally buy the idea that you like first and foremost as a college football coach. I'm not talking about NFL coach. It's a different animal. College football coach. If you're dealing with players that are 18 to 22 ish years old, you've got to be able to build 
relationships with them. You have to be a professional relationship builder. That's what you've got to be first and foremost. That's how, and that kind of, and to me, like recruiting is related to that. If you can build relationships with your own players, you can build relationships with high school players and that you'll build on that once you get them into your, into your program. So I absolutely buy into that. You have to be able to build those relationships because it doesn't matter how many, how many X's and O's, you know, you could be a freaking genius. Uh, but if I you mean, that's, that's one of the problems with Todd Grantham. What's that? That's one of the problems with Todd Grantham. I think that guy is 100%. a very knowledgeable person when it comes to defense coordinator, but he's not a very no, not pers- personable yeah. person. I'll throw another name from, from a blast in the past. Charlie freaking Weiss. Okay. Remember the, yeah. the, the, uh, the infamous, well, now, now that I'm the coach, we're going to have a decided schematic advantage that like, yeah, that dude was an X and O genius, but he could not relate to his players. He did not know, didn't, and really didn't care about building relationships with them. And he fizzled, he flamed out. So I don't care how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much you know if you can't get that across to your players, number one. And number two, if you can't get them to care about you and get them to play for you, that has to happen. You might not say, you might say, well, these guys should be intrinsically motivated. They shouldn't have to play for coaches. Dude, we're talking about 18 to 22, 22 year old kids. Okay. That's what we're talking about here. That's just how they work. Trust me, I do it every day of my life. That's how it operates and you've got to be able to do that so i 100 buy into what kirby is saying i think I, I i will stand by what we said when it was first announced home run hire absolute home run hire um all right moving on last thing here finally today uh kirby didn't actually speak on this himself but it was reported by the athens banner herald the same day he was doing all these interviews that defense coordinator dan lanning has received a pretty substantial salary bump from seven hundred and fifty thousand last year to 1.25 million. You guys know I'm not good at math. I'm not a smart man, as Forrest Gump would say. Uh, but I think that's a 500k pay raise for Lenny after one year as our defense coordinator. Is that right, Kurt? Did I did the math correct there. I believe so. Yes, I'm going to say I did. And that 500,000 uh, pay bump up to 1.25 million a year that puts Dan Lenning firmly in the top 15 nationally. Now this is based off 2019 assistant coaching salaries. We don't have the the data for 2020 yet, but based on those numbers, he's down the top 15 nationally in assistant coach salaries. And I did the research. I took it a step further. I did this research. I'm not sure many people know this, but at 33 years old at the time this recording, now he'll be 34 on April the 10th. So if you listen to him after April the 10th, he'll be 34 right now. He's 33 at 33. Dan Lanning is actually the youngest member of the $1 million assistant coach salary club. The next closest would be Alabama's Pete Golding at 36. Uh, Arkansas's Kendall Browse at 37. He's making right at a million. And South Carolina's Travaris Robinson at 38 years old. So, Kurt, two related questions here. First, how do you feel about this raise for Dan Lanning? And second, why do you think Kirby made this move after only one year? Um, well, first, I just want to mention, I'm kind of shocked that Pete Golding's a million-dollar guy as the fact that I don't think he's anywhere to what Dan Lanning is. Um, a lot of Bama fans want him gone. Yeah, and, and yet Dan – I mean, Dan, and I don't think that Georgia, especially last year, everyone talked about how we didn't have a true superstar on our team, yet we, you know, had one of the top – or the top defense in the nation. True, um, so I do yeah. want to – I wanted to talk about that. But at the same time, it doesn't shock me. I mean, you saw a lot of teams coming after him. So you're going to have to pony up. I mean, salaries are going more and more. I mean, as much as he's making, he's still way behind people uh, 
like uh, Aranda and stuff because you know Aranda what they did. Five million, yeah, like exactly. Double, so yeah. th- when they made that salary, it's affected salaries in general of what we expect from people. Um, so I think you have to take that into account. So if you're going to be a top defense coordinator at a university, and, and I get why we paid him what we did his first year because he still had to prove himself. Uh, but after you go out there and put out the top defense in the nation, uh, you're going to have to pony up. Yeah, I mean, like if you look at Aranda, Aranda obviously has gone on. He's the Baylor head coach now. But last year he was making $2.5 million. Brent Venable is making $2.2 million at Clemson. Mike Elko at A&M, uh, $2.1 million. Kevin Steele at Auburn, one point nine. Todd Grantham at Florida, one point eight. Todd Orlando was at Texas, making one point seven, but he's no longer there. Uh, John Chavis, oh my God, one point five million. What? Oh my God, one point five million for John Chavis at Arkansas. That was, oh my God, that's abysmal. Um, Don Brown at Michigan, one point five million. Jimmy Lake at Washington. Now he's the head coach, but last year's defense coordinator, one point four million. Alex Grinch at Oklahoma, one point four. And then you come in Dan Landing right there. Um, so, and some of those, and the other names, the guys that have been around the block a little bit longer, more of a track record. So it makes sense. The guy like Dave Aranda, Britt Venables, and Kevin still making more money right now because, again, I mean. Dalian's only 33 years old. That's crazy. That is insanity to me that he's only 33 years old um, and doing what he's doing. But it's 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 very simple to me. Dalian is a rising star in this profession. We uh, if you remember back to when uh, Mel Tucker took the job at Colorado, who did he try to hire as the demons coordinator? Kurt Dan Lanning, not Schumann. Yep. yep, he wanted to bring one of those two guys. That both Kirby got, was able to keep both those guys. Uh, obviously, had to give them the co-demons coordinator roles and, and those titles. And uh, you know, and what this tells me, giving him a five hundred thousand dollars raise, this tells me about we, we might not have heard about it in the media, but this tells me there was some interest in Dan Lanning behind the scenes. And uh, Curry, this, you tried hard to get him. Yeah, and there was some. Yeah, absolutely, there was some talk about that with Mike Norvell. I think that certainly had a role in this as well. Uh, there's no doubt. But I'm telling you what, whatever Kirby has to do to keep Dan Lanning, I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to be. I mean, we'll see what happens financially with the with our athletic department with this whole situation. But like. Uh, he's going to do whatever it takes, whatever's in within our capabilities to keep Dan Lanning. Cause I think he's, I think personally, I think he's that good. And this tells me a couple of things that there are guys, there are teams coming after him like Florida state. It also tells me how much Kirby respects him. Right. We're, we're talking about. A yeah. I mean, I actually, dude. I actually believed our uh, recruiting picked up under him. You saw all those guys. I mean, he's the reason we got Nolan Smith. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, you can say the same thing about Mikel Sherman. And, and I know people like Mikel Sherman is not um, a household name as much as, as Nolan Smith was. He wasn't the number one recruit, but MJ Sherman's a baller. And Dan Lanning was all, and that's, he, he, he locked him up. He locked him up. And you're right about Nolan. Like Dan Lanning is the reason we got Nolan Smith. I mean, like Kirby, sure. That, that factors in Schumann to agree. Sure. But Dan, like, if you remember, Nolan was kind of, uh, he was, I, I don't want to say. He was like a Richard LeCount. Yeah, he, I'm not saying he was shaking his commitment, but like there was some talk when there was some some movement on the staff. Like I don't know, I mean, I, mean, I don't. He didn't he never decommit or anything, but there was some talk about like I don't know how firm he is now. Lanning comes in. I remember like reading uh, Nolan's comments after like his first meeting, like first phone conversation with Lanning, and then his first meeting, and he was like, "Oh, dude, like I'm good, man. Like I'm 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 Gucci. I'm all good right now." Um, and that's Dan Lanning. So it's recruiting. It's all in the field stuff. Um, Kirby knows what he's got in him, and, and do you, like I know this is popular to say but do you buy into the idea that kirby sees some of himself in dan lanning oh i think yeah definitely i think that's why he liked him he's so high on him and schumann both yeah. they're like miniature versions of him yeah and he got two of them um and and god forbid that dan lanning ever does end up taking another job somewhere i think schumann probably slides into that spot we'll see i don't know i think there's a very good chance of that but i i'm hoping we can keep dan lanning around as long as possible he's going to be a head coach someday but I, ho- I hope to god he's gonna be like kirby and he doesn't just take the first job I hope that he waits for the right job. 
Um, and where, I don't know what that job's going to be for him, but I hope he does. And we, we get to enjoy him for uh, as many more years as we possibly can. Cause I think the guy is a freaking stud. I absolutely do. I think he's totally deserving of 1.25. I'd pay him more if we had to, but Hey, I'm glad we got away with only 1.25 million. I think he's a, he's a star in my opinion, but uh, all right, guys, that does it for us here today on the glory J podcast. want to make sure we touched on everything Kirby had to say last week. We will be back later this week to do the sweet 16 of our glory UGA greatest Georgia football players of the past 25 years tournament. Man, we had some knockout uh, matchups in the sweet 16. I'm talking like some dead heats. So that'd be a lot of fun to talk about later on this week. So make sure to check back with us then. Uh, But thanks for listening. Stay safe out there, guys. We love each and every one of you. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.